Is big pharma the devil? We're talking ethics and biotech on this healthcare edition of Industry Focus. It is Wednesday, February 17th, 2016. Christine Harge is here. On the other end of the line, via Skype, we've got the cunning Todd Campbell. And we're answering a question today that we received via email. Um, as always, you can email us at industryfocus at fool.com. We love taking listener questions. And we thought this one was so interesting that we wanted to do an episode to answer it. So Clay McKinney writes in, he says, I've read Frankenstein. I've seen Splice and Jurassic Park. Science is scary. On the other hand, I'd love to make money by owning companies that are curing cancer and making the world a better place. When looking at biotech stocks, is there a way to know which ones share the same ethical perspective as me? Avoid the spooky weirdos. So Clay here has got a great point. There is this natural disconnect between wanting to help people in need, sick people who are in dire need of new treatments, and being a company that is pursuing profit. A 2015 Harris poll on corporate reputation found that Americans ranked Big Pharma ninth out of 14 industries. So that's right up there with insurance companies and airlines as far as respect goes. So clearly, Big Pharma is maybe doing something wrong or something is not striking the right chord with the American public. Todd, can you highlight a, a practice that you think might be raising these red flags for people who look at companies through a moral lens? Hi, Christine. Yeah, you know, the, today's topic, I'd be surprised if we didn't get a lot of listener feedback. Hopefully, we will um, with their opinions on, on the subject. It wasn't always like this. I mean, it used to be that, you know, companies like Merck were some of the most respected companies out there. Um, you know, they were, they were developing medicines that save people's lives, and that, that's what people focused on. But you're right that something has changed, and people now view them the way they view tobacco companies you know it's it's not um, it's not healthy for the industry if you will um, and therefore you could argue that it's not healthy long term for investors uh, I, I think that one of I mean there are all sorts of you know things that are going into that reputational decline in the industry um, but I, probably one of the more high profile uh, parts of, of reasons why is the issue of drug pricing yeah, absolutely. And of course, this was brought into the public debate recently with the whole Turing Pharmaceuticals ordeal. Um, as many of our listeners are probably familiar with, this guy, Martin Shkreli, the CEO of Turing, essentially bought up this old drug and jacked up the price of it overnight 5,500% of an increase, and seemingly for no reason. Right. This drug has been used for decades, and it's used to treat parasitic infection. It's used in HIV patients uh, to protect their central nervous system. I mean, this is, it's not, you know, a massively, it's not a top seller, it was, it, but it was a common drug. It, it was used, um, and it only, at the time, cost $13.50 a pill. Um, and then, you know, Turing steps in, and they buy it, and that price jumps to $750 a pill virtually overnight with no improvement. You know, it's like taking a a car that's 15 years old and then, you know, saying, you know what, you have to buy this 15-year-old uh, car for more than uh, it costs brand new. It, it, makes no, it made no sense from, you know, uh, f from a healthcare perspective, it made no sense. 
Mm-hmm. And so with that, it, this question of how drugs are priced and whether it's ridiculous to be pursuing just a profit starts to become a national debate. And so you see all these other healthcare companies come under fire, ones that do develop their own drugs in-house and then charge what some see as excessive fees for them, and particularly drug makers that have a model of mostly buying up other companies or other drugs and then bringing these new treatments under their uh, their wing and raising the prices. We've got a d- couple different ways to think about drugs. You have you know, drugs that are developed internally by research and development teams or externally by research and development teams that are then brought to the market and that actually make huge inroads into how patients are treated or, or the patient outcome or whatnot. And then you've got these other drugs that are maybe just like tweaked a little bit, maybe now that you, instead of taking the pill twice a day, you're taking it once a day, uh, those kind of things. And the debate then becomes, okay, well, should I be paying, you know, $1,000 a pill for something that maybe I only have to take once fewer a day? Um, or or should I pay $1,000 a pill for a drug that now fed, effectively cures a disease, for example, Gilead Sciences, hepatitis C drugs, or should I never pay $1,000 for a drug? Yeah, and of course, there's a really complex ethical question underlying that, which is your whole premise of competition. I mean, on one hand, $1,000 a pill sounds crazy, but what if there was some sort of cap where you could only make $100 a pill or you know, some sort of line of this is the most profit you'll ever have, would we still have this drug at all? Would it then have been worth it for Gilead Sciences to develop it? So the other side of the coin is you kind of want high prices in the pharmaceutical industry so that there's incentive to innovate and improve standard of care. Yeah, and to that point, you know, if you look at it, you know, I'm a free market capitalist at heart, right? So I'm looking at it, I'm saying, okay, well, why is it that the United States oftentimes gets access to new medicine before other markets. It's because we tend to reward innovation more than those other markets. If you set price controls and you negotiate down the profitability of a particular uh, drug for a drug company, they're more likely to go to a market that they find more economically viable. So, you know, you can make the argument absolutely that because we reward innovation, we get innovation first. Yeah, and the other uh, element of that story is that the U.S. has relatively strong patent protection, which raises another question that I think might be even more questionable than drug pricing, which is this policy of pay for delay. Yeah, pay for delay is a uh, it's something that is. I think you're going to see a lot more stories being written about this because I don't think it's as well known. Uh, as drug pricing to the individual investor. But pay for delay, basically what happens is I've got a patent, my patent's expiring on a drug, I've got a bunch of generic manufacturers who are just lining up the door to start marketing you know, the, the alternative to it. Um, my, my sales are going to plummet as a result. Uh, typically generic drugs end up capturing 80% of the market of a branded drug uh, once they launch. So why don't I then go ahead and approach that generic drug manufacturer and cut a deal with them where I hand them a pile of money uh, that's less than what I can earn on the drug and ask them to delay launching it? Yeah, and from a business perspective, that's a win-win. But you look at who loses in this situation, and check check out this stat. The FTC estimates that this practice adds $3.5 billion to drug costs every year. So, you have this practice that both sides of the businesses 
are about. And all of a sudden, it's adding so much money to these drug costs. So the Supreme Court actually ruled in June 2013 that the FTC could legally pursue these agreements as potentially illegal, potentially a violation of antitrust law. And so we are seeing a little bit more uh, of a conflict there between the FTC and pharmaceutical companies that are pursuing this sort of pay-for-delay practice. Yeah, regulators are going to pick up the pace here. And part of the reason that they're doing that is because, as you you know alluded to earlier, you know, if you're delaying the entry of a generic drug, you're theoretically, you're harming the American citizen, right? Because you're you're making them pay more for a drug that, that theoretically could save their life than, you, than necessarily was intended when the law was written. You can't just maintain a monopoly and pay to maintain a monopoly. That's that's not legal, right? So the FTC now is going out and looking at the, some of these deals and, you know, some of the money that's already being forked over by companies who are being uh, targeted by the FTC is, you know, pretty staggering. I mean, you know, very recently, uh, Teva Pharmaceutical had to pay $1.2 billion uh, to settle a pay for uh, delay deal uh, that occurred at its, at its Cephalon unit back in the 2000s. And, you know, the, 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 the issue is being looked into globally. I mean, GlaxoSmithKline was recently in the news overseas uh, because, you know, in the UK, they just settled with the UK for $54 million for delaying uh, the entry of a generic version of an antidepressant drug that they had. So, yeah, you're going to see the, more of these cases. Regulators are definitely going to try and, and prevent this kind of monopoly-like behavior from occurring. And, and it is a problem. Yeah, and, and even more common instance in which regulators are getting their hands involved in this regards marketing practices. And you've seen a ton of instances where pharmaceutical companies have to pay for either not disclosing safety risks or marketing a drug off-label, meaning not for its actual approved indication. I saw one estimate that from January 2009 through February 2014, 11 pharmaceutical companies agreed to pay over $13 billion in fines. And this was for all sorts of allegations, you know, all the uh, previously mentioned ones about your misleading marketing practices, uh, failure to report data, all that kind of, of, of liabilities. That's a staggering number. Mm -hmm. Staggering. I mean, you're talking about billions of dollars that the industry is willing to pay in fines. Uh, and the fact that they're continually having to pay these fines suggests to me that they're approaching it as business as usual. Okay, well, we'll go out, we market the drug, we spend a lot of money marketing these drugs. $27 billion in 2012 was spent promoting drugs, either in person to doctors or on the airwaves, if you will. Um, and this is just one more piece of that puzzle. Okay, it's a cost of doing business. We'll pay the fine because we're out there marketing these drugs, and that's how we're going to, to grow our sales and our profit. Yeah, and it's kind of alarming when you consider that this is just the cost of doing business. And there has been a little bit of conversation about maybe tightening restrictions on the way that you can market. Uh, there's a conversation going on about potentially eliminating TV ads that are direct to consumer. Um, I can kind of see that argument, too, that you don't want to be marketing a disease. You want to be marketing the drug. And, and even then, you kind of don't want people asking for a brand name specifically when, A, there might be a generic equivalent out there, or B, that might not be the best drug for them. And if you go into your doctor and you're like, oh, I saw this TV ad. I want drug X. It looks great. 
but that's not really the best drug for you, the doctor has a dilemma there because he doesn't want to upset the patient and if something goes wrong, possibly find himself in trouble. But he wants to also prescribe the best drug for you. Yeah, I mean, so so you've got that aspect of it. You also have the whole concept of, okay, well, is it, you know, I've, if a drug is on the market, it's something that investors should know this. If something is on the market, if a drug's on the market, a doctor can prescribe it for something that's not on the drug's label. So, you know, that part of it is okay. So say you've got a, uh, a pain drug that's approved for cancer and you find that it also helps, you know, peer review journals or whatever show that it also helps uh, relieve back pain. Okay. Well, you're, as a doctor, you can prescribe it for back pain if you choose. However, a company that manufactures that pain drug can't start marketing it to all of these doctors to start using it as a pain drug for lower back pain. You can't you can't do that. Okay. So a lot of this off-label marketing is 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 what's I guess causing these uh, these settlements, the billion dollar settlements. Um, you've got a lot of different issues on on this front that um, I, I think you could argue aren't as as efficient as they should be for creating long-term shareholder value. Uh, And it's all more geared toward creating short-term value for Wall Street investors. You know, speaking of investors and shareholder value, where do you stand on whether or not pharmaceutical companies should be returning money directly to their shareholders? Because I, I have heard the argument that if you have extra money, you should put that towards either more research and development or simply subsidizing the drugs that you put out there. I mean, is there something ethically wrong with taking this excess cash that you have from your high prices and delivering it via dividends? I don't. I don't think so. Um, I, I'm. I fall down on the on on this side of the equation on this. Okay, when it comes to biopharma, developing drugs is expensive. Okay, you spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year uh, on research and development at an individual company. It costs that much to develop a drug. Your rates of success are very low. It's a 5,000 to 1 odds that you're actually going to take a drug from preclinical to commercialization. Okay, so once you start generating a profit, uh, investors who have been with you all along should be rewarded. Oftentimes, they've been penalized because of dilution, because of shares that have been offered into the public uh, or released into the public to raise money to, to fuel that research and development uh, activity. So you could argue that the money that's being spent on buybacks is just bringing that share count back down to where maybe it, quote unquote, should be. Um, like you said, you know, how much of that money should go back into R&D is a decision that has to be made at the top level um, because in theory, if you're going to be able to get a bigger return on your investment by putting more money into drug research, then that's where you would be sending that money. So these decisions are being made every day. Um, you know, and I think I fall down on the fact that I, I suppose it's, it's up to the, each individual corporation to determine whether or not they can make more money down the road or generate greater value for the shareholders down the road by plowing all of their profit into research development or returning some of it via dividends or buybacks to investors. So I'd love to look more at Clay's question and maybe give some ideas for how you can find 
the companies that are doing it right and making those higher level decisions in an ethical way. But first, let me just throw it out there that we have a totally new redesigned podcast hub for all of the Motley Fool's podcasts. Uh, so if you check out podcast.fool.com, you can get more information about both this show, Industry Focus. Uh, you can also hear about Motley Fool Money, Motley Fool Answers, Rule Breaker Investing, and Market Foolery, all of which are fantastic shows. So highly encourage you guys to check it out. And now let's talk about some of the good stuff. We talked about a lot of negativity surrounding this industry and explained why people are so skeptical of it. But there's also a lot of good out there. You know, when you're trying to find great investments, and it doesn't matter if you're talking about biopharma companies, you're talking about, uh, you know, a footwear company, okay? You, you want to find companies where leaders are willing to invest in people, not only their em employees, if you will, to have happy employees to create new innovation, but you also want to find those companies that are willing to invest in their consumers. And, you know, in biopharma, uh, I think one of the way, ways that you know maybe the reputation can get repaired for some of these companies is to do to more actively advocate uh, for patients. And there are some companies that are doing a good job of this, and they're they're you know letting people know that they're doing it, um, which I think is valuable towards repairing uh, relationships with consumers and everyone. Um, but two of those companies that jump out are Gilead Sciences and Johnson and Johnson. Both of those companies have suffered their own fair share of setbacks as far as fines and uh, for acts that are arguably unethical. Uh, but at the same time, they're all also um, ex showing, you know, putting their money where their mouth is and, and showing that they're willing to make a commitment to returning money either through, you know, setting up charitable organizations or doing a very good job of raising awareness or providing free screening for patients like Gilead Sciences does. Or you know, putting the patient at the center of of their entire process, like Johnson and Johnson uh, CEO Alex Gorsky um, said in in its recent fourth quarter earnings conference call that you know any discussion regarding you know where healthcare should go from here has to put the patient front and center. And it's not just words either. I mean, these companies also back what they're saying with quite a bit of money and quite a bit of initiative to fund. Uh, allowing um, access to their drugs in more developing markets. Gilead, for example, allows several Indian generic companies to make and market Sivaldi, their hepatitis C treatment, in over 90 countries in the development, developing world just to provide more affordable access. Yeah, they don't. They didn't have to do that yet. They could have held off on that. It's good to see that they took that initiative. They also provide free screening uh, for for both HIV and HCV in certain cases. Um, you know, Johnson and Johnson has made a commitment uh, globally toward helping. Um, you know, with save through Save the Children and and also um, through helping to support research into things such as you know Ebola. So yeah, these companies are are doing good as well, and they're good corporate citizens, and those are the kind of things that investors should be looking for. Because over time, uh, the people who are in it just for the current quarter, um, they're, they're not the investments you want to have in a portfolio that's got a twenty-year time horizon. One more question I want to pose to you before we sign off, and this is actually a question that comes from a coworker of mine who came up to my desk a couple of months ago, and she was very concerned about all of this bad news that she was hearing about biotech and big pharma and whether or not they're ethical companies. And she asked me, is it ever in the best interest of a company to make a cure when you could just continue to make treatments? 
Yes, and I think Gilead Sciences, sh you know, showed that. I mean, they're effectively curing hepatitis C with Harboni and Savaldi. So, you know, you could have, they, theoretically, they could have created a drug that was less efficacious, right? Um, and, and would have, you know, basically required a, a pill a day for the rest of your life, but they chose not to do that. And as a result, you know, that innovation is being rewarded in the marketplace uh, with billions of dollars in additional sales. So, yeah, I think, I think it's within their best interest. Do you? Absolutely. Yeah, that was a similar answer that I gave to her, which is, if you can make a cure for it, if it's possible, then somebody's going to do it. And so, not even like ethics aside, it's in your best market interest to be the first one to do it. If you're the maker of treatments and a competitor comes out with a cure, you get totally wiped out. So, you might as well make that cure first. One company Absolutely. that I want to point out that I, I think sums this up pretty well is actually Biogen in multiple or multiple sclerosis. So they've got this phase two drug, Antilingo, that the hope is it can slow, halt, or even reverse the adverse effects of lesions tied to multiple sclerosis. So you're reversing the damage there. And MS drug revenue for Biogen is huge for them. It's 80% of their total revenue. But right now it's coming from treatments like Tecfidera, which is just that, a treatment. And so, it, when we get these results from Lingo in mid 2016, it's quite possible that Biogen could be eating their own market by bringing this to the public. But to me, that demonstrates the kind of hope that we're talking about there, where you, it is in your best interest to cure these diseases, both from an ethical perspective and from a finance perspective. And I think, really, at the end of the day, that is our biggest hope: is that the two can be married. I absolutely agree with that. I think that they're not mutually exclusive. And I think that it starts at the top. You need to have leaders who are committed to the long haul and to patient outcome. And if you have that, then everything else will follow. Absolutely. Um, I am going to end the episode with a quote from George W. Merck, who was the president of Merck & Co. quite a long time ago. And he says, and I think this sums up the best hope that we have for the industry. He says, we try to remember that medicine is for the patient. We try never to forget that medicine is for the people. It is not for the profits. The profits follow. And if we have remembered that, then they have never failed to appear. The better we have remembered it, the larger they have been. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Folks, thanks for listening. Thank you.